Advent, and Advent, as we've talked about, just means coming or arrival. It's this week of expectation as we wait for Christmas and for Jesus to come. And really, it's kind of what this whole season is about, waiting for Jesus to come in a way that changes everything. Um, It's a season marked by hope and love and joy and peace. Although if you go to very many stores and you wait in line, you don't see a lot of hope and joy and love and peace. You hear a lot of anger and animosity and people upset that it cost more than they thought it did. I mean, like, that's what you hear. Um, we went to a store yesterday, and my wife said, why did we go on the Saturday before Christmas? And I said, I don't know. Um, we didn't stay long. Um, I, I was thinking how, how this season is marked by all kinds of words, and especially among children. Have you noticed how kids, they just love Christmas as they should. Um, but I was thinking how... How in that, they write letters to Santa. And we're looking, this series is called Christmas Letters, or letters, they're really letters from Paul. And so we're looking at the words of Paul several different ways, but I wanted to read a couple, couple Christmas letters that kids wrote to Santa. And so here is what these children wrote to Santa. Dear Santa, please text my dad. He has my whole list. I like it. Dear Santa, I wanted you to know I'm fine. I don't know how, but could you possibly make it so I could turn into a dragon, please? Or give me a pet dragon. Either one will do, though I would like it if you could make me turn into a dragon. P.S. Have a happy Valentine's Day. (laughs) Dear Santa, all I really want for Christmas is a turtle. I've always wanted a turtle because turtles are the coolest. Dear Santa... If you bring presents that take batteries, please send the batteries. (laughs) That might have been my favorite one I read, and I read way too many of these this week. I mean, these letters to Santa are lighthearted, and they're funny, and they're telling. I mean, they show us the creativity of children. They show us how children, they just say funny things and things that we appreciate. Uh, I was appreciative to not see. There wasn't a lot of confusion over Santa and God. Some years there are. Um, The ones I read this year didn't show that. But what becomes obvious as you read these kids' Christmas letters is rarely do we think of asking for things for others, right? That wasn't high on their list, but the reality is these kids model what they see from their moms and dads. Typically, um, our lives are primarily about our own desires, our own comforts. But we do primarily want stuff or things or things that are necessary for us. We struggle with the idea of living in a world in which team is valued. The idea that we would be a part of something beyond ourselves. So I, I've coached for a number of years, and this week I had to take a, a test. Um, the Michigan High School Athletic Association made me take a test. And in that test, um, it said the, it's great to have multi-sport athletes. I was like, okay, what's the point? And it went on to say in that test that one of the great things that student athletes learn is that maybe you aren't a star player in one sport, but you're a role player in another sport. Or maybe you're just a role player in multiple sports. And those are great life skills for, for student athletes to learn. And I thought, it's a great lesson for all of us to learn. Um, in fact, it made me think about uh, a time when I was a teenager. I was 18-year-old senior in high school, and our team hadn't lost, uh, we'd lost, we hadn't lost all year, and we were playing in the state semi-state tournament and I only lost one match the entire year and in that day I lost two in the same day and I was pretty ticked 
Um, I was distraught. I was angry. I was all kinds of stuff. And our team won, but I was upset because I didn't contribute to that win. And so normally, you know, we might, some of us might go get eat together or whatever, and it's a two-hour drive home from where we played, and um, tennis is a small enough sport that you don't take a bus, usually you just ride with parents or whatever else, and so we all, I left. I didn't stick around and talk to anybody. Apparently, the, they were trying to ask me some questions for the newspaper and the local television, and I was already gone. Um, and I was just frustrated because I, I felt like I lost. Even though our team won, it was disheartening to me. So I drove home with my parents, we got home. Um, I took a shower, and when I got out of the shower, my dad said, hey, you need to uh, go in the living room. There's some people here to see you. What? Who? He said, I think you should just go in the living room. And I walk in, and there were the rest of my teammates. Um, and I, it's still one of the most remarkable things in my life as I look back on what it means to be a part of a team. And tennis is a singular sport. Like, you win or lose by yourself. <laughs> you occasionally play doubles, but basically you're on your own. And so there were all these guys standing in my living room and they said, hey, we, we need you to go to the state finals next week. We need you to play. Like, you, are you okay? I was like, yeah, I'm fine. I'm just ticked that I lost. Like, I'm sorry, guys. I, I. But I learned an important lesson that day. You know, their point was, like, you, if you don't play, we all have to move up a spot and that, t- that doesn't do good things for us as a team. Because you still, even though you lost, you filled a role that someone else could win at another position. And so I, I remember leaving that conversation feeling bad about my behavior. Like I was disappointed in myself because I knew in that moment, even though I was on a team and we won or lost the team match as a team, I only cared about how I did. It's true. I, didn't, I mean, I cared if we won, but I cared if we won if I won as well. And the truth is, I think that's how many of us live. And I think it impacts our faith in dramatic ways. Here's what I mean by this. Um... When it comes to faith, often I'll hear things like this. Well, that's between me and God. This is for Jesus and me. I'll hear those kind of phrases and I'll hear them and I'll say, huh. um, To be fair, I want want to say something here. We're definitely invited into an individual relationship with Jesus. That is personal. Absolutely, 100% believe that. But do you realize that our growth doesn't happen alone? Like, it's one of the hardest things for us to recognize that sometimes we'll think, well, I, you know, I'm just going to grow in Jesus. I'm just me and Jesus. Let's read my Bible and that'll be enough. And, and it's not. The nicest way I can say this, it isn't. It never has been. It never will be. I mean, this, this is what I want us all to know, that the greatest growth doesn't happen personally. It happens collectively. The greatest growth happens among one another as a part of a team, not by ourselves. And this is what I want to talk about this second Sunday of Advent, this Sunday of love. Love cannot happen apart from an other. Love cannot happen apart from an other. We cannot love others if there are no others to love. And I would say it this way, because if it's just you and God or you and Jesus or however you want to phrase that, here's what, the, what I can tell you that I can summarize from most of the New Testament. If you don't believe me, go read it all and, and then try to prove me wrong. The measure of how we love God is seen in the measure of how we love others. In other words, I'll say this differently, um, our love of God is seen in the depth of our love of others. So we cannot say we love God if it is not reflected in the lives of those around us. That's not true. Because how we love God is seen in how we love everyone. That person that we like the least, the person we might call our enemy, or we might say we hate them, we cannot hate them. Christians cannot hate. Or you are by definition not a follower of Christ. 
This is what the second Sunday, this Sunday of love, I mean, this is why love is so powerful. Love is about the other. Love is always about saying, how can I put them ahead of myself? How can I take care of them? How can I care for them? How can I tangibly express love in ways that are life-changing? Because our love of God is seen in our depth of love of others. I know this seems impossible, right? Because we think of the people who've done the worst to us. We think of the people who have done the worst to others that we care about. And yet it's Jesus who on the cross himself said, oh, don't hold this against them. Stephen, the first early church martyr, he says, Father, forgive them. I mean, these are powerful words. But they meant them. That's what makes them more powerful. Right? It's not hard to hate. It really isn't. It's pretty easy to do it, actually. But it is really hard to love. And so Paul writes often to early churches, and he writes to the church in Philippi. And so we're actually going to be in Philippians chapter 1 in just a moment. And the wrong verse is in the bulletin, because I gave her the wrong verse. That's my fault, not hers. So um, we're in Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 to 11 here in just a moment. But, but Paul consistently writes to the early church. He writes to these people who he's gotten to know. He helped start many churches. But, but Paul writes to this group of people, and he has this kind of longing in all his writings that they would come to know Jesus more and the very character and nature of Jesus seen in his Holy Spirit would define their lives. And so what Paul keeps saying over and over again in all his letters is this. You need one another. You cannot do this alone. I can't do this without you. Paul has spent time with this Philippian church. And he's kind of got this passion for them because they are one of the most faithful groups of followers that he can find in all the early churches so see, we're not 100% sure where Paul was writing from. Paul was in prison, we know that certainly. Whether he was in prison in Ephesus or whether he was in prison in Rome, we don't know. But let's assume that it was in Rome. And if you don't know the story of Paul's life, Paul's end of his life happened in Rome where he was imprisoned and eventually he was crucified. Paul is writing this before his death. Whether he knows his death's coming or not yet, he probably doesn't based on the words of the letter. But Paul is in prison. No matter how you look at that, that's never a good thing. His earlier imprisonment, he was able to kind of come and go. It was more like a house arrest. This one is not. But prison in that day, you were taken care of not by just the prison. They didn't just give you food. It was your friends and your family and your relatives who came to you and cared for you and brought you food. Or you would starve to death because the state was not going to pay for your food. And so Paul writes to the church in Philippi and says, thank you. Not only for me, but you guys have sent food and provisions, money and stuff to people in need, not just in your own country, but in other countries, because you all recognize what it means for us to care about other people. Thank you. And so Paul, in Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 to 11, he writes these words. I'll let you to stand with me as we read them in honor of God's word and to wake some of you up already. Um, <clears throat> Paul writes these words, I thank my God every time I remember you and all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart. And whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. 
And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best, may be pure and blameless for the, joy, for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. You may be seated. It's interesting that Paul, um, Paul again in this prayer, makes a point to make sure that we know he calls us to pray and that he prays for others. Um, Paul models where we should find kind of joy in the middle of this passage. I mean, he talks about joy in prison, joy through prayer, joy with sharing in faith with others, joy in suffering. Uh, That's a whole other conversation for another day, but Paul encourages us to find joy even in the midst of suffering. He says the joy of helping others to know who Jesus is and sharing about Jesus, telling our stories, and the joy about living out hospitality. Paul writes of this joy that comes ultimately by knowing God's love. And then Paul writes what is one of my favorite passages of Scripture because of what has meant in my life. It's this particular line. It says, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. This is a really important verse for me. Uh, several years ago, I was on staff at a church as a youth pastor and, and um, I was going through a really rough season personally. And just life was hard, ministry was hard, I was just in a bad space. And I came into my office one morning and I walked in and this verse had been taped to my door. Um, I don't, I, I'm pretty sure I know who did it. Um, I at least assumed they did it and I said thank you to them and they said you're welcome so I'm hoping it was them but um, they never did confirm that. Um, they just said it was true. And so this verse, this idea that he who began a good work in you would bring it on to completion, like meant a lot to me, this idea that God doesn't leave us or abandon us, that he is present with us, and that, that the, in the end he will help redeem and restore and make all things new, and that, that what we're going through will never be the end. And so it really meant a lot to me. However, um, here's what I want to say, because I think we get this wrong too often. I got it wrong in that day. The verse meant a lot to me. It was important to me. It still is. That God uses the scriptures in ways that, are, that the Holy Spirit is at work. But one of the things that sometimes I think we do is we get stuff wrong because we don't understand it. And here's what I mean. Well, Paul writes, he who began a good work in you, that you is not singular, it is plural. That you is you all. Paul's letter to the church in Philippi is to the entire church. It isn't to one individual person. What Paul is saying here is this, to you, the entire church, so every time, nearly every one of Paul's letters, nearly every single one where it says you, it is written to many, many people. It is written to an entire congregation, not a singular person. So what Paul is saying in this verse is, to you all, to you, the entire church at Philippi, God has begun a good work, and you as a church, as a community of faith, as a fellowship of people, God has begun a good work in you, and he will see it on to completion. That's really, really important, by the way. See, it goes back to this idea of team, right? We, we like individual. Individual makes sense to us. We like that. Well, the Bible says, like I know, I mean, I'm going to offend some of you, and that's okay, because if I don't offend you, it's at least someone every week, and I'll get at least one note. I feel like I haven't done, I've done a service to you all. But like a lot of you quote Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, and then you go on and it says other things. Um, that is not written to you either same way I misheard this text. I mean, it was meaningful to me, 
But that isn't what the writer Jeremiah is saying. The writer Jeremiah is saying, for you all, for a people. In fact, he says, after 70 years in exile. (laughs) So when you're 70, if you want to use it as your own verse, or later, God will have a plan for you. Before then, you're out of luck, um, if you're going to use that passage. But for you all, God desires to shape a people, a team, a collective unit together going in one singular direction. And what Paul says is this, God who began a good work in you as a people, God's going to see it to completion until the day Christ Jesus comes again. But do you know something powerful? The church of Philippi doesn't exist anymore. Say what? That church is not there. Those same people have long since passed away. There is no church in Philippi because Philippi doesn't exist anymore. The whole place is gone. See, what Paul is saying here is it doesn't matter where you are what space you gather in. God will do a work through his people and it will transcend all time. God will do a work that will change the entire essence of the very world in which we live. This is about bringing heaven into earth in the here and now. It is about the work of God's kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven which will come all the time. Whether this building exists or another church down the road exists or they're burned down tomorrow, God's church will continue to be at work and he will be present with his people no matter what. See, the church transcends any one city, any one building, any one nation. The church is universal. It is, we use the phrase in the Apostles' Creed, it is one holy Catholic church. Catholic means universal, by the way. Like this is what God does in the world around us. It's why he wants us to be a part of his team. He wants us to recognize that he wants to shape a people. And so I was thinking about this week, how do I, how do I share what it means to be a, we're in this together, that we're never in this alone. And so I want to read to you just, um, bear with me, I was trying to condense this and I didn't do a great job. Uh, Henry Nowen is one of my favorite authors and um, he has written all kinds of stuff. But one of my favorite books of Nowen is called In the Name of Jesus. Christian leadership in the 21st century. Um, when I was a student and all that, it was required reading, and then when I taught, it was required reading for some people in the same course. And, and I have, I think all of our staff has read this here, and it is a powerful thing. And so Henry Nowen was invited to speak at the turn of the 21st century to a group of pastors and ministers and scholars in Washington, D.C. on what is leadership going to look like as followers of Christ in the 21st century. And so he, he writes this, and then um, if you don't know Nowen's story, Nowen is a, was, a, was a Catholic priest, and, but he was also really, really smart. Uh, he taught at Harvard and Notre Dame and Yale. <laughs> um, pretty, pretty stellar career teaching. But then he spent the end of his life in a community called Lark uh, in Canada. And this community is for mentally disabled. So Henry Nowen went from the best and the brightest to the least intelligent in terms of what we can understand that they're actually articulating. And so this is his kind of transition in this. So so Nowen writes these words in this book, and it's the Daybreak Community, where he goes. After some consultation, the Daybreak Community decided to send Bill. He's going by himself. Henry is not going to Washington, D.C. by himself. To send Bill Van Buren with me. Since my arrival at Daybreak, Bill and I have become good friends. Of all the handicapped people in the house, he was the most able to express himself with words and gestures. From the beginning of our friendship, he had shown a real interest in my work as a priest and had offered to help me during services. One day he told me that he had not been baptized and expressed a strong desire to belong to the church. I suggested that he join a parish program for those who desired baptism. 
Faithfully, he went to the local parish every Thursday evening, even though the long and often complex presentations and discussions were far beyond his mental capacities. He had a real sense of belonging to the group. He felt accepted and loved. He received much and with his generous heart gave much in return. His baptism, confirmation, and first communion during the Easter vigil became a real high point in his life. While limited in his ability to express himself in many words, he felt deeply touched by Jesus and knew what it meant to be reborn by water and the Holy Spirit. Often I had told Bill that those who are baptized and confirmed have a new vocation, the vocation to proclaim to others the good news of Jesus. Bill had listened to me carefully, and when I invited him to go with me to Washington, D.C., to speak to priests and ministers, he accepted it as an invitation to join me in my ministry. We are doing this together, he said at different times in the days before we left. Yes, I kept saying, we are doing this together. You and I are going to Washington to proclaim the gospel. Bill did not for a moment doubt the truth of this. While I was quite nervous about what to say and how to say it, Bill showed great confidence in his task. And while I was still thinking about Bill's trip with me primarily as something that would be nice for him, Bill was, from the beginning, convinced that he was going to help me. I later came to realize that he knew better than I as we stepped on board the plane in Toronto. Bill reminded reminded me again, we are doing this together, aren't we? Yes, Bill, I said, we sure are. And this is the epilogue. Writing these reflections was one thing, presenting them in Washington, D.C., quite another. When Bill and I arrived at the Washington airport, we were taken to the Clarendon Hotel in Crystal City, a collection of modern, seemingly all-glass, high-rise buildings on the same side of the Potomac River as the airport. Both Bill and I were quite impressed by the glittering atmosphere of the hotel. We were both given spacious rooms with double beds, bathrooms with many towels, and cable TV. On the table in Bill's room, there was a comfortably... Um, there was a basket with fruit and a bottle of wine. Bill loved it. Being a veteran TV watcher, he settled comfortably on his queen-size bed and checked out all the channels with his remote control box. But the time for us to bring our good news together came quickly. After a delicious buffet dinner, one of the ballrooms decorated with golden statues and little fountains, Vincent Dwyer introduced me to the audience. At that moment, I still did not know what doing it together with Bill would mean. I opened by saying that I had not come alone, but was very happy that Bill had come with me. Then I took my handwritten text and began my address. At that moment, I saw that Bill had left his seat, walked up to the podium, and planted himself right behind me. It was clear that he had much more concrete idea about the meaning of doing it together than I. Each time I finished reading a page, he took took it away and put it upside down on a small table. I felt very much at ease with this and started to feel Bill's presence as a support, but Bill had more in mind. When I began to speak about the temptation to turn stones into bread as a temptation to be relevant, he interrupted me and said loudly for everyone to hear, I've heard that before. He had indeed, and he just wanted the priests and ministers who were listening to know that he knew me quite well and was familiar with my ideas. For me, however, it felt like a gentle, loving reminder that my thoughts were not as new as I wanted my audience to believe. Bill's intervention created a new atmosphere in the ballroom, lighter, easier, and more playful. Somehow, Bill had taken away the seriousness of the occasion and had brought to it some homespun normality. As I continued my presentation, I felt more and more that we were indeed doing it together, and it felt good. And we did it together, didn't we? When I came to the second part and was reading the words, the question most asked by the handicapped people with whom I live was, are you home tonight? 
Bill interrupted me again and said, that's right, that's what John Smeltzer always asked. Again, there was something disarming about his remark. Bill knew John Smeltzer very well after living with him in the same house for quite some years. He simply wanted people to know about this. Um, it's, it's a book worth reading and buying if you want it. But um, I was thinking how one of the things that we sometimes miss is this idea of sharing in things together is so powerful. To, see, it's why I would say to share with one another in life and in ministry changes everything. To share with one another in life and in ministry changes everything. And see, I, I want to say that this is hard for some of us because to lay ourselves out there and to allow others into our lives, we live in a culture that's really guarded. It is impersonal. It is not practical to do this. You may be wounded. It is not about you first. It is about the other first. And so to open ourselves to this kind of relational connection with people is hard. This is what Paul is encouraging the church in the in Philippi, you see, we are in this together. We are partners together. This is what Paul is saying to the church. We are in partnership. Here's how I would say this to you. You are all, if you call yourself a follower of Jesus today, you are in full-time ministry, whether you knew it or not. Whether you get a paycheck for it or not, if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, you are to be a person who lives in full-time ministry because it does not stop. Paul talks about this, whether I am in chains or not. Our faith, our love, our joy are not dependent upon our circumstances. What Paul says, we are partners no matter what life throws at us. We are partners in God's grace. We are partners in the work of the good news of Jesus together. We are partners with one another and sharing together. We are partners to encourage. We are partners in the midst of suffering. We do this together. It is what Bill understood with Henry We do this together. We are never alone. Paul is saying, partner with me as I partner with Christ. And then he goes on to say this, I love you as Christ loves you. I love you as Jesus loves you. Sacrificial, selfless, life-giving. Can you and I say, yeah, we do that as well? Because Paul's writing to a church saying, hey, it's not just my role to do this, it's yours as well. Hey, you all, God began a good work in you all. He's going to continue the good work in you all. If I could rewrite the New Testament and take out all the U's that are singular and make them plural, I would. The English language is not always good. Are you all going to understand that God is at work in you all today? We should be from the South. This would be easier. My vocabulary doesn't work that way, but Paul writes and speaks as one who is a conduit of God's love. And he says these words, And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God that your love may abound more and more. Wait, and here's the crazy part. In knowledge and in insight. See, what Paul wants us to understand is love is not just a heart thing. Love is a head thing as well. Love is about both our head and our heart, and anything less than head and heart is not love. Love is fullness. Love is our entire self. Love is mind, body, soul, spirit. They are all interconnected in love, and God says that it has to be more than just 
head thing, what he's saying is we overflow. It's the cup analogy again for the third week in a row. Will your love overflow out of your life? Not a cup with a hole in the bottom, but will you be solid on the bottom so that God's love comes in and overflows to those around you? In other words, will you see the world as Jesus sees the world? Will you see that person that you don't like, that you work with? your neighbor, your colleague, will you see them as God sees them? But this type of love is hard. This type of love comes through effort. This type of love comes through discernment and wisdom. It comes through the work of God and it comes together. So I reminded the measure of our love for others is seen in the measure of our love for God. And so here's a line I don't want you to miss today. If you catch nothing else from everything I say today, and you're a follower of Jesus, because I'll give that caveat, because some of you may not, aren't sure about that. Like, what I'd say to you today is, I hope you know Jesus, and I hope you know he loves you, but if you call yourself a follower of Jesus today, this line should mess with you a little bit, because if we love Jesus, we will want to know more about him. Now, what's that mean? How do I know more, more about him? How do I know him more? And it's not just about him. It's about how do I know him more? I actually would rewrite that if I could write it now, but it's already on your screen, so I can't rewrite it. How do I know him more? With some practices, some rhythms of life. Spend time in the scriptures, and here's what I would challenge any of you today. I, I, if I could, if, I, if you told me, like, I, I only want to read one section of the Bible for the next year, what would it be? Here's what I would say. I would say, open your Bible and read from Matthew chapter 5 to Matthew chapter 7. Read the Sermon on the Mount and live there for a full year. You could read it daily if you want. Easily. It's a 5 to 10 minute read. Maybe 15, 20 if you're really slow. I mean, you can, you can knock it out. But if I could tell you to do one thing, I would say this. Spend a year daily reading the words of Jesus. If your Bible doesn't have red letters in it, go find a Bible with red letters or download the Bible app and it's got them in red letters for you. Just read the words of Jesus if nothing else. Spend a year with Jesus. Because to be, by definition, a Christian is to be a follower of Christ. And who is Christ? He's Jesus. So, so maybe the words of Jesus would be a great place to start. You say, what about the whole Bible? We can get to that. But know who Jesus is. Because once we come to know him, then the whole rest of it makes some sense and we begin to re-understand all of it in light of him. So how else do you come to know Jesus? Like if you love him, you should want to do this. It's a want to, it's a loving relationship, right? Like I want to know more about my wife. Like if I find myself on my phone or watching television too much and not paying attention to her, I'm not really all that loving, Love wants to know more about the other. Love is about the other. Love is always about more than ourselves. So to know Jesus is to spend time in his word, in the scriptures, knowing the words of Jesus. To know him is to spend time in prayer. And prayer is not, it's not hard, but it's also not easy. It takes effort and time and investment. And here's the hard one. We said we're a part of a team, right? You do this together. You cannot grow in Christ by just reading his words alone and going, oh, well, God told me. It's between me and God and I'm sorry for you. No, that gets us in bad places. Our faith is lived out in community and conversation and wrestling together. It is something we do day in and day out. And then it's allowing it through our weekly gathering. Come every week. 
I know that's crazy to say, you mean you want me to go to church like 50 to 52 times a year? Yeah, I do. At least 45. And you think I'm kidding. I'm really not. I'm serious when I say that. There are practices and rhythms of our life that cannot happen alone. We cannot grow as a follower of Christ. We cannot love. The overflow of our love of God into the lives of the love of others cannot happen unless people are asking us questions. Hey, are you loving well right now? Are you okay? Are you connected to a group? It's why in January we have people start signing up for groups again. Sign up. Go, I don't know them. No one knows them the first time. I'm in a group right now and no one knew each other before the first time we met except for me. I knew everyone. It's the benefit of being the pastor. No one else knew anyone else in the group. Like there's something to be said for being a part of something in which is greater than ourselves. There's something because it, we should begin to look like Jesus and it should be the gentleness that draws others into our lives. It draws them towards us because we know him and he has shaped us into this way. It's why at the first of the year we'll have a sign-up sheet for those of you who say you're going to read the Bible in a year. Join me in that. I'll have you sign up because they won't ask you, hey, have you done this? Are you a few days behind? Let's pick it up and try to catch up together. It sounds insurmountable. It's like 10 minutes a day. You can do it. But we also think there's practical elements that faith calls us to beyond just what happens here. Um, so I'd say it this way. We, we, um, we've talked a lot this year and continue to talk about that we believe God wants our community to know what he's for, not just what he's against, that God's for you, he's for your future, he's for your family, and he's for this community. And so we have cards available at the doors as you leave. They look like this. They just say, pay it forward on one side and hashtag for the lakeshore on the backside. And these cards, what they're for, if you're able, and not everyone has to take one, it's okay if you don't. Um, if you buy yourself a coffee occasionally or you go to a fast food place or maybe you're really generous and you go to a restaurant and you think, you know what, I'm gonna leave this card and I'm gonna pick up someone else's bill. And that's what they're for. And you just pay their bill and leave the card and say, hey, um, we're for this community. You go, uh, you want me to pay for the bill? Yeah, I do. <laughs> I'll do it too. You don't do it every time you go somewhere. You don't have to do it every, every drive-through. I mean, one of my favorite stories about a church who started this, they, a church actually did this and they, they got people going, the line at one Starbucks went like 200 some cars deep at people paying it for the person behind them. Who knows what could happen by dropping five extra dollars or two extra dollars or 20 extra dollars for someone who may, and if you can't, that's okay, don't. But you can, you can leave the card and say, hey, I'm praying for you today. I don't know your name, but I just want you to know you're being prayed for. It doesn't cost a dollar. That's free. This requires some effort. And so not only that, but we have, because we gave you these stickers that were really bad, by the way, if you tried to put one on your car, it didn't work, sorry. Um, we got new ones, and they're white printing, because that's supposed to be, we tried to be cheap, it didn't work so well, uh, so we had to be a little less cheap, because these should work, and so these actually have white letters, and they're available at the doors as you leave as well. And you can put it on your car, and I would encourage you to clean your car off first so it sticks, and use a credit card so it doesn't have bubbles, and all those kind of things that I learn the hard way usually. But here's the thing, God wants us to be for others, because the measure of our love is how we love others. Our measure of love for God, our love for Jesus seen in the activity of our life and the way that we care for other people. So I have kind of a, um, a prayer for you all, for us all. 
My prayer is that over the next six months or so, or really for the next 60 years, I don't know, that we would learn to love others well in our midst. See, I, I think, um, I sent a note to all of our, our staff people as they've been listening to some of our conversations among all the people, and I just, I asked one question. I said, if there was one thing that we could, we could focus on for the next few, few months, what would it be? And I got two things back, both, both and I, um, it was like fellowship, discipleship kind of connected together, and then the other one was that we would have a heart for people who don't know Jesus, like I said, oh, yeah, yeah, that's pretty much, I mean, like, as we've heard, that's the overflow of the conversation among you all. And so my, my prayer for us really is this, that, that we would begin to care less about our personal preference and more about others. That's a part of caring for the other. That's what love looks like. That we would begin to engage with people who, who don't yet know Jesus and we would love them well. We would love them, not make them projects. And that we would begin to invest in those who are just sitting near us on Sundays and in our groups. And, and, and the truth is, there's already more, once there's more than 20 people, you cannot know everyone, just so you know. It's not possible. You can think you know everyone, but you don't. You'll never know everyone who gathers here. And that's, that's okay. That's actually a really good thing. But get to know a few people well. Invite them to your home. Buy a cup of coffee. Let's create a spirit of hospitality and a spirit of love that even if I don't know you, you know that I love you. Even if I can't tell you your birthday or the day in which you have your anniversary, I know that someone can here. And you go, well, no one, no one sent me a card on my anniversary or my birthday. Then join a group. It's your fault too, as nicely as I can say that. Love goes both ways. And is that, you say, well, that's risky. Yeah, it is. Super risky. It's hard. But it's worth it. Because this is what God says. Like, you do this together. What Paul's saying is this. He who began a good work in us, he who began a good work in you all, he's going to continue to be at work in it. Are you going to join with him in that? Are you and I going to partner with him in ways that others come to know you, that we grow deeper spiritually together? Are we going to partner with God in such a way that others who aren't yet here will come to know Jesus and want to be a part of what we're trying to do? Will we begin to share a message around our community about what it means to love God and love others, or are we going to be just about ourselves? And so I want to end with this line, and this will be the line. We won't even sing a song today. This is, this, this is the last line of the morning, the very last one. So pay attention, and those of you who are asleep, hit your neighbor and wake them up. Don't let them fall asleep as they leave. In fact, I'm going to ask you to stand as I read it. I mean, you can write it down too if you want, but I have one last line today, and I don't want you to miss it. It's kind of important. I think it's important. I hope you will think it's important. Here's the last line. We are in this together. We learn to live lives of righteousness together when we learn to live from a place of love. We pray with me. Father, we thank you for this group who has gathered. That we would be a people who are so wrapped up in your love that we would begin to think of the other first. That we would look past our personal preferences and our differences. And we would say, what does it take for people to grow in deeper relationship with you? And what does it take for us to love people who are not yet here in ways that they will want to be a part 
Father, what I pray for is, I know, a big, big ask. The big ask is this, that our pettiness would get put aside and we live for something greater than ourselves. That this holiday season, as we recognize this Sunday, is a Sunday of love. That love would overflow, that we would recognize the measure of our love for you is seen in the measure of our love for others. And that is all others, not just the ones we like. So Father, will you help us to embrace the words of Paul and these letters for Christmas? This Christmas season, we do a change in our hearts and our minds and our lives, and we would begin to love as Jesus loves, that we'd recognize we are in this together. That for us to live lives of holiness and righteousness comes by us being in this together. And so, Father, for those of us who call ourselves followers of you today, who do recognize that that's an invitation to know you more, to seek you more, to love you more, for that to be seen in our activity and action of our life. We pray this all in your son Jesus' name. Amen.